Hello, and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Stephen Miller, who is a recent master's graduate from Glasgow University and an aspiring psychedelic-assisted therapist. In this episode, we talk about Stephen's academic experiences at Glasgow University, where he studied philosophy and Spanish during his undergraduate and psychology during his master's program. He talks about how his interest in human consciousness led him to studying philosophy and how it connects to psychedelics. We also discuss Stephen's master's research where he explored the integration process related to psychedelic experiences while partnering with the Psychedelic Health Professionals Network in Scotland. In our conversation, we cover the value of qualitative research, along with some of the challenges that Stephen faced during his project and how he overcame them. Additionally, Stephen tells us about his journey to find his first job since graduating, working as a psychosocial therapy support worker for the National Health Service in the UK, and offers advice to others who are interested in taking a step into the psychedelic world. Finally, we conclude our discussion with Stephen's hope for the future of psychedelics. Be sure to check out the show notes for ways to connect with Stephen, as well as relevant links from our conversation. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all of our members, and it allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. We also have a new opportunity for our listeners to support Psychedelic Grad. If you visit the links in the show notes, you'll find a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you can donate to Psychedelic Grad and help us keep the dream alive so that we can continue to provide resources and education and keep growing our community. Finally, thank you to our listeners for joining me in this wonderful conversation with Stephen Miller, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, Stephen, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, yeah, really an honor to be here, um, and I'm excited for this conversation. Yes, I am too. I'm so excited. A lot of our listeners are used to um, our conversations with our guests, kind of starting with the organization that our guest is affiliated with, but your journey is a little bit different in terms of where you're at. So I'm really excited to present a different conversation. Uh, I guess, organization to our conversation where we'll start from the beginning of your story and talk about um, some of the events that have gone on in terms of, you know, how you became interested in psychedelics and your educational background and then um, your job search process and what that looks like and ultimately how you landed to where you're at right now. Um, so for our listeners, the the organization of things will be a little bit different than some of our other episodes, but I think that this is a really useful way to explore Stephen's journey. Okay, to get us started, Stephen, where would you say that the start of your journey is in relation to your psychedelic work? Would you say that it started before your undergrad education? You know, which came first, your psychedelic interests or your education? How does that look for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think. I think it started with an interest, a personal interest first. Um, so I was studying philosophy at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And um, the, the kind of topics I was really interested in in philosophy were philosophy of mind. Um, so understanding consciousness, looking at different theories of consciousness. So I, I always had a kind of academic interest in the mind and consciousness. Um, and then a kind of personal interest, I started um, reading a lot of Carl Jung. Um, listening to Alan Watts, Terence McKenna, people like this. Um, so I think that was the, the kind of the beginnings of opening my mind up to, to psychedelics and, and thinking about the mind in, in, a kind of, in a bigger picture than I was used to. And that, that was maybe when I was about 19 or 20, the beginning of my undergraduate degree. Um, so that, that, that would have been, yeah, I, I guess the, the roots of the, the development of my interest in psychedelics. Um, and then it took a few more years of studying in philosophy and then eventually I transitioned to a master's degree in psychology until uh, I kind of took my first real step into the psychedelic space. Awesome. That's so interesting how, you know, you kind of, there's a few other guests that we've had on the show and I've heard other people talk about it too, about 
their interest in psychedelics really formed from their interest in consciousness. So it's cool to see how their how psychedelics and that consciousness really bring people together and bring people into the field. So in your undergrad, you studied philosophy, which I'm not sure many people would connect with psychedelics. Was there anything that you learned in philosophy that really ties into um, psychedelics and consciousness and ultimately what you're interested in doing within the field? Yeah, I think um, so in particular, the areas of philosophy that uh, interested me most, as I said, was the philosophy of mind. In in Scottish universities, we study a kind of a broad spectrum of philosophy. So a lot of it's focusing on the Scottish Enlightenment and John Locke, David Hume, all these kind of um, traditional Enlightenment thinkers. Um, and they study the mind-body problem and um, in, in quite, I guess it was representative of the time, but, you know, just understanding the mind as being kind of, superordinate to to the physical processes that are happening underneath and that in some sense what's happening in the mind is illusory and doesn't really have any kind of real world status um which you can kind of follow the logical arguments of that but i think it leaves quite like a um a flat and meaningless picture of your experience to say that you know everything that's happening inside your own your own internal experiences is just a byproduct of physical processes. That, um, I mean, it's one picture of reality, but uh, I think it can be quite a, a meaningless picture of reality in some sense. I, I then studied a course in existentialism, atheism, and faith, um, and th- that was more phenomenological philosophy and existential philosophy. Um, and that was just a radical shift in perspective from what I understood from that school of thinking is that like experience is, is fundamental and real um and on top of that we can then build an ontology um so so that puts like <laughs> you know your emotions your thoughts everything that you experience your sensations just as as fundamentally true even though they're subjective and then you can kind of build the world on top of that and that was like to, to go from one perspective to that was at least to me that that seemed a lot more um life-affirming philosophy um and i think that it really kind of opened me up to thinking about how much how little i knew about the mind (laughs) how little i knew about consciousness um and and how much there is to explore in that realm um so i i think that just the kind of general interest in the expansiveness and how much there is to learn about consciousness in the mind i think psychedelics kind of relate to that you know i guess the term psychedelic mind manifesting um in some sense that's what psychedelics can give us is they can give us an insight into the kind of depth and breadth of the mind um so yeah i think that yeah the nature of that course kind of got me more interested in psychedelics and then um as i state starting to learn a little bit more about psychology as well i wanted to find a little bit more of a practical application for my interests philosophy i studied spanish and philosophy my joke was i was going to become a spanish philosopher but i wanted to find something that was that had a genuine practical application so my interests and then efforts focus in on on psychology and uh, started started reading people like carl jung um and again a lot of his work is well it's depth psychology so it's understanding the kind of the deep patterns of the mind um, and all the kind of things that are happening at the unconscious level that you can experience during psychedelic experiences, but in your day-to-day life, you don't, you don't usually encounter. Um, so I, I think that was the kind of, yeah, as I say, it wasn't directly related to psychedelics, but I guess just opening me up to, to being more curious about understanding consciousness in the mind, um, which eventually tilted me towards learning more about psychedelics. That's really fascinating. Um, And, you know, I think this is a really important thing to highlight how, like, no matter where someone is at in their journey, if they feel like they're not studying something that's directly psychedelic related, like, there's always a way to find something in what you're doing to kind of relate it to psychedelics. And um, when it comes to philosophy, and it just made me think about it when you were talking about it, like, even just the philosophy of consciousness and understanding existence in that way and using philosophy to, to talk about it, 
you know, it, it really even is the underpinnings of understanding so many things about consciousness, even when we talk about like the neuroscience of psychedelics too, right? Um, you know, this question of what is truth and is the science that we're producing our understanding of the brain and the way that it works, is that really truth? But, you know, it's almost an underpinning of philosophy. It's this uh, faith that it is true in a way. Um, just, it's so interesting. So I think sometimes we take science um, so literally um, and just take it on the faith that it is true when in reality, it's very much kind of underpinned by a sense of philosophy of just kind of like, yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but this kind of just philosophy of accepting that there's a truth there. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting there that actually philosophy is very much tied into a lot of what we do in, in uh, psychedelic work, whether we maybe even recognize it or not. But yeah, something interesting to really kind of think through. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and kind of to continue that theme, I mean, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to preface this with, I really don't know much about anything, <laughs> but this stuff really interests me. And I have studied it a little bit, but but I would like to put forward these are just, you know, my thoughts. <laughs> Um, but but for sure, that I, th- I think science and, and, and evidence based definitely has its place. It's obviously unbelievably useful. But at the same time, like I don't, it's not obvious to me. And I'm sure there is a way to bridge th- these two perspectives. And I think that is kind of what's happening in the in emerging psychedelic research. But it isn't obvious to me how you know the encounters you have with the parts of your mind during a psychedelic experience that people report is easily explainable in, in scientific terms like yes you, you can map it onto what's happening in the brain and that is really useful but it's also really useful to be like well i was having a conversation with the spirit of the father that was that manifested as you know as a as a greek god it's like yeah well that that's really helpful for someone to view it through that lens and it might not be helpful to view it through the lens of okay well these neurons were firing in your brain maybe both are true <laughs> it's just you know I, I th- there's maybe there's different types of truth that all going to point towards the same thing yeah i like that idea of there's different types of truth that's a really useful way of thinking about it and i think uh the psychedelic field could really benefit from kind of looking at you know those multiple truths in a way um so yeah that's an interesting point to to bring up um very cool. So we talked about your undergrad, you studied philosophy in Spanish. Um, so after your undergrad, did you go straight into a master's program? I did, yeah. So it was a um, uh, five years undergraduate program and then uh, conversion to psychology master's, yep. Is five years standard for an undergrad? So in, in Scotland, four years is standard. In England, three years is standard. Mine was five years because I did Spanish as well. So with Spanish, you have the opportunity to live in a Spanish-speaking country for a year, which uh, which I took the opportunity to do, which is actually where I had uh, my first psychedelic experience. Oh, that's really cool. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because typically in the United States, if you do like two majors it ends up being like five years, um, but four is typically the the standard in the United States. Um, very cool that you had the opportunity to go and um, live and kind of practice Spanish in context. That's a really important way to learn language. And it's really cool that you had your, your first experience um, outside your cultural context that you're used to. So that's really interesting too. Yeah, I think uh, that that's, uh, was another factor that, kind of guided me towards um, studying psychology and then becoming more interested in psychedelic research was having that experience. Um, Is there, you don't have to talk about this, but is there anything specific that you want to talk about that experience that kind of led you into the journey that you had? If not, we can kind of switch gears and talk more about your master's program. It's totally up to you. Um, No, I, I don't think there was, there was anything specific other than, what I'd maybe mentioned before, it just kind of <laughs> opened my eyes up to like how deep 
experience can be um, and how much is happening underneath the surface that, that most of the time we just aren't aware of. Um, and, and because of my interest in, in, in psychology before and, and like a lot of it was a lot of the kind of conceptual stuff that happened during the experience was related to, I think, my understanding of Carl Jung at the time. Um, so it, I guess it, it kind of affirmed my interests and then uh, affirmed and deepened my interests, I'd say. Okay, perfect. That makes sense. All right. So you finished the undergrad degree and you headed into a master's program. Um, what was your master's degree in and, and did you uh, did you continue that at Glasgow University? Yeah, so it was in psychology and um, I continued at Glasgow. Yeah. Okay, and I remember you telling me a little bit about a project that you did during that master's program. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that project was about? Yeah, so it was a it was a dissertation. So the, at the end of the course, we got the opportunity to choose a research question that we wanted to do. So before, it's all very prescriptive. You know, you're going to learn uh, implicit learning processes. You're going to learn X, Y, and Z. But at the end, we got the opportunity to choose something that we were curious about. <laughs> um, so I took some time to reflect on it and, and eventually it became quite obvious to me that if I could do a research project into psychedelics, that would be that would be great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I spent a bit of time um, just reading reading the literature and trying to see if I could narrow in on a question that was genuinely needing to be answered from what I could understand of the research. And also something that I could do feasibly with the constraints of having no research experience, no qualifications, and no resources, and, and the time constraints of doing it within five months. Um, so yeah, after kind of that process, I, I landed on a question that would be good to look at psychedelic integration. Um, kind of roughly thinking about the psychedelic process in terms of preparation, experience, integration, um, and to do a, a qualitative research project. Um, so at, at first I was a little bit ambitious. Um, I proposed to my, uh, dissertation supervisor, I was, ah, I'd, I'd love to do, uh, research into psychedelics and it'd be great to, um, research, uh, clinical populations so or people that have been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness, um, and put this forward to him. And I was really excited about it. And then he got back to me straight away saying, uh, this is the most ludicrous, dissertation uh proposition i've ever had and here's three reasons why i just listed three reasons and uh, they, they were all valid reasons it was uh i don't have the training or qualifications to work with a clinical population understandably um he he was he's a little bit more old school in, in psychology and that he hadn't heard anything about the psychedelic research at all which which i was quite surprised he didn't know anything about he was and you also want to um research an illegal drug that's not going to work and um the amount of time that this would take to do a project so no um so I was, I was a little bit disheartened at first but um it was something i was genuinely curious about and i thought there, there could be a project there so eventually with over a series of emails backwards and forwards we kind of narrowed down to an agreement that i wouldn't work with a clinical population i'd work with a population of healthy normal volunteers um and I could do qualitative interviews and that would take down the, the resource demands. Um, so yeah, <laughs> after a little bit of pushback, we eventually, and I think his concern at first was that I was just maybe a bit of a hippie and like just had a crazy idea like, oh, this guy just wants to study drugs. But I think once he realized that I was, and this is why I really liked the name of the, the podcast, actually both curious and serious about it. And I had done a little bit of reading into it and I wasn't just kind of making it up on a whim. He was on, he was on board with the project. That's so interesting that um that yeah you got a little bit of pushback on that and um I definitely like I resonate with that feeling of like people are just like oh you're just a hippie who wants to study drugs <laughs> so I definitely I feel that and um but I think that idea of being persistent. Um, and kind of showing like, no, I'm, I'm reading the literature and I know what's going on in the field, like creates a sense of 
um, seriousness to to the project and a sense of legitimacy that you're, you know, you're not just like, oh, I just want to go out and just study illegal drugs. Um, but that's interesting because I didn't really receive pushback with my project, but I did kind of get the vibe of people being like, oh, you're just a hippie. <laughs> so that's, that's funny. Um, but it's great to hear that the project ended up you know, being able to go through. Um, so you you did qualitative interviews with people. Um, what specifically were you looking at in those interviews? Yeah, so um, I reached out to, to really fortuitous series of events, got in touch with the Psychedelic Health Professionals Network in Scotland, um, which we can maybe talk a little bit about later. They're really um good and interesting organization so i managed to get in contact with them and so so they kind of provide learning resources um, and psychedelic experiences abroad um for health practitioners in the uk and mainly scotland um so they were quite interested in what i was proposing as research because they were interested in the integration process as well so how do people integrate psychedelic experiences was the main question of my research um so it was I interviewed about eight, seven or eight um members of the psychedelic health professionals network, most of whom were counselors, psychiatrists, um, psychotherapists in, in some form, um, who had had psychedelic experiences. Um so yeah, I, I kinda interviewed them, I got to know them a little bit, um, and then interviewed them about their preparation process. What the experience was like itself um, and then what their life was like afterwards and, and how they managed to integrate it um, which was by far the most interesting part of the process because uh, as i'm sure people may know from the research it's like people write these experiences in like the top five most significant things that happened in their life so i was privileged enough to speak to seven people about some of the most significant things that happened in their lives um, and tell me all these amazing stories about the experience itself and then what they learned from it and the wisdom that they got from it and then how that changed their lives. It's like, wow, that was that was such an honor um, to be able to just speak to people on that level because it's not it's not every day you get to have these conversations with people about like, you know, what are your fundamental values? What, what's the most important thing to you in your life? And what, what's your relationship like with your family? So um, just at, at, at that level, it was just, really rewarding and engaging um so I, I carried out these interviews and with kind of targeted questions and i wish i was a little bit more targeted in my questions i was maybe on the curious to serious spectrum i was maybe too far on the curious side because they'd start talking about stuff and oh man that's so interesting and kind of dive down the rabbit hole of something that wasn't entirely related to the question and i think there's a balance there with with qualitative analysis it's, is good to go with the flow of the conversation, but it needs to kind of be guiding towards the question. So, yeah, and, and as I say, this was my first ever research project, so I was just just always making mistakes, <laughs> which is again part of the process. Um, so yeah, that was the interview process, and then I had to transcribe all the interviews, which was incredibly boring, and then read them over, um, read them over a bunch of times, and and kind of analyze them into. I used interpretive phenomenological analysis, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, but basically it's, it's a long process of just extracting out kind of low level themes and then like higher order themes of what people are talking about and putting it together. Um, so eventually across seven interviews, I extracted kind of two main phases or themes of integration, which was interpretation and incorporation, which kind of maps quite nicely onto the findings from some of the research that they're doing down in London the silo depth uh, research. Um, I think, so I called it interpretation and cooperation. There, there's just something like um, telling the story, distilling key insights and embodiment, which roughly map onto the same thing. Um, so it was that, and then reading more of the literature and then relating the findings that I got from my analysis of the interviews to, to the literature, um, which was, I think about a four or five month process in total. That's such a fascinating project, um, and there's so many pieces in there. I wanna I wanna hit on um, one. I like that you admit that you made mistakes throughout the process, right? Um, which is 
so important to hit on because uh, as a qualitative researcher in anthropology, watching myself make mistakes and grow from them is honestly one of the most beneficial parts and most beautiful parts of watching myself grow as an academic. So hearing you say like, oh, I recognize that I made mistakes, um, I think is really important to highlight to our listeners because like if you're doing work like this and honestly in any work that you do, you're going to make mistakes and that's totally okay. It is part of the process. It's part of growing. Um, I also like that you use qualitative data. It's not something that we always see in the psychedelic field where we see a lot of like, you know, survey kind of data analysis, quantitative stuff, which is important too. But that qualitative stuff, like you said, it gives you such rich, um, what we would call in anthropology, really like ethnographic data, these really deep, rich narratives of like storytelling and experience, things that can't be captured in numbers, you know, um, which is really an important kind of complementary type of data to go along with the quantitative research going on too. Um, And another thing I want to touch on too is you highlight the privilege, right, of being able to you know, collect and hear and share in people's experiences. And these are, these are some of the most meaningful experiences of their lives, but oftentimes they're also some of the most vulnerable moments of their lives. And to be able to connect with people over them, especially like, you know, it's not like people that you live with or that you're best friends with, or that it's your family. You know, these are people that, you know, they trust in you Um, And they trust in the process and they trust in their experience so much that they're willing to share that and put that out there. And that's something that's really hard to do and really um, a vulnerable process in itself. So having the privilege as a researcher to share that space with someone and have that is, it's such a privilege and it's so beautiful. And I found that in my research too, in the number of people who have uh, shared their, their experiences with me, um, and people get really excited about sharing those experiences too, which is, which is so nice um, because it, it feels, it feels like a privilege too to be able to provide them a space to be able to do that um, when sometimes other people aren't able to, or aren't interested in, in listening to them. So you touch on a lot of really awesome and important pieces in there that I think are really important to qualitative research. Um, and I also really like that you, you highlight like the monotony of transcribing interviews. Um, like research isn't always like these beautiful daisies and roses. Um, <laughs> I've spent countless hours of my life uh, transcribing interviews and it's, it's daunting. <laughs> so I definitely, um, definitely feel the pain of that sometimes, but it's part of kind of pulling out, you know, those really beautiful, deep ethnographic pieces of qualitative experiences. And, you know, we can't really get to them any other way and just kind of part of the process. (laughs) So thank you for sharing all of that. I think it provides a really unique perspective on qualitative research that we don't often get on the show just because we do have a number of individuals that are more quantitatively geared towards research. Um, So this is a really unique and different perspective for those of our listeners who might be interested in qualitative research or even a mixed methods research that combine that quantitative and qualitative. So all very useful information. Yeah. And and, um, it kind of links back maybe a little bit to what we talked about at the beginning about like there's different ways to look at what's happening during the psychedelic experience. You can look at what's happening at the level of the brain or, or the level of, you know, people's experience. And the, the reason I chose qualitative, there was a few reasons. One, I, naturally, I, ha- I had more of an affinity with qualitative research than, than quantitative research. I, we did some during the year, but um, I just found it more arduous and it wasn't as, it wasn't as exciting. Um, but also, I think qualitative research is good in an area where there isn't really much known. And that was my understanding of the literature that I was reading at the time was that there isn't really much known about psychedelic integration so qualitative analysis by its nature is more exploratory so that kind of analysis seemed to fit well with the terrain um and also it kind of answers questions that and again i could be wrong with it (laughs) but my guess is that it it answers questions that maybe a more quantitative method can't answer like what is it like so like what is it like to 
to meditate. So, so a lot of what was really interesting about the research was people's experiences with mindfulness practice and meditation after psychedelic experiences for lots of reasons. But one of the main reasons was that it helped them reconnect to a similar state of mind or similar aspect of the experience that they could then kind of re-experience the positive effects from the original psychedelic experience during the meditation practice. And that was, that was just really interesting. And like, but, but to ask people, what is it like during meditation? What was kind of going on in your inner world that helps you reconnect to the psychedelic experience? I'm not sure exactly that that can be fleshed out and explored with quantitative analysis in the same way that it can be with qualitative analysis. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, those questions of like, what is it like, or how does this experience, you know, kind of manifest? Um, those are the types of questions that quantitative data can't answer. And so qualitative is, is really the way to go to collect that kind of, that kind of information. Um, and I think you hit on something else too. You also hit on the idea that qualitative research is really good for like exploring things, you know, the things that we don't really know, the things that we can't like nail down and kind of label or put into a box, which is really useful for quantitative data. You know, that's where qualitative data can come in and explore and kind of figure out what's going on, the messy kind of entanglements and squishiness is kind of what I talk about with my students in anthropology, the squishiness of how things complexly come together um, and exploring what all of that looks like. Qualitative uh, methods and analysis are really useful for parsing through that. Um, so I think that's really, really cool and interesting to talk about too. Yeah, for sure. I, I think um, I think they both have their place and I think they both complement each other nicely. Yeah, I think it's important to, to recognize that it never has to necessarily be one over the other, that one's better than the other, but they both have their place and their context. And sometimes they're really much more powerful together. You know, they can really complement each other, which is um, a really great thing, too. All right. So we talked a little bit about your master's degree and your research, which is super fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Because we talked about the duration of the undergrad, how long was your master's program? 12 months. Ooh, 12 months. Okay. All right. And is that typical for uh, your degree program? Um, I think so. <laughs> uh, but I'm not entirely sure. I, I know some master's courses are, are more I think eight to 10 months, but um, this one, because it was a conversion course, we needed to condense a lot of material into a single course. It, it was 12 months. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay. I'm always interested because I find, I have a lot of students that come up to me um, that don't study anthropology, but they're like taking my anthropology course. And they're, they're always asking like, how long is this program and how does this work? And I'm like, every department and every university is different. Um, so it's always interesting to kind of hear that. Okay. So, and, and so there's other options too, like there might be more traditional where it's a little bit longer. And then you said, this is like a condensed kind of, uh, program. So it was like 12 months, uh, which is really interesting. Okay. So during your master's program, um, you kind of talked about some of the challenges that you faced in terms of forming the project and coming up with that. Were there other challenges that you faced in that program? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was during COVID. It was during during lockdown. Um, so I guess that was a challenge in itself. Um, and the university moved everything online and we, we had forums and class discussions and everything online. So um, we managed to work around things well. Um, I think a challenge that I only maybe realized was a challenge only recently was uh, just the lack of social interaction <laughs> it's obviously quite a simple thing but i didn't realize at the time how important it was um just to be in a class of other people because it, it's not common to be surrounded by people that are interested in the same stuff as you um just to have those conversations after class like, oh what you know you're interested in psychology as well great let's let's talk and, and kind of missing out on on that aspect of things and just seeing people through a screen um you know, it, it's, it wasn't that bad. There was other benefits of the fact that we were in lockdown. We, we got given um, 
a lot of extra support during the exams um, and some of the conditions made it a little bit easier. So th there was there was pros and cons for sure. Um, and then another challenging part of the course, um, I guess, was more more related to the project was just the, the ethical approval that, that took a long time to do just because of the nature of the study. Um, and I don't think there'd been many people that had wanted to study psychedelics um, in the psychology department before. So it, it took a little bit of, <laughs> it took a lot of emails, <laughs> a lot of back and forward to, to finally arrive at a place where the university were happy, my supervisor was happy, and um, I could still do a project. Yeah, you bring up a really good point on the ethics side of things. Um, it's something that, you know, a lot of people haven't talked about or our guests haven't really talked about um, is getting that ethics review board or that ethics approval. Um, and I know, like, in my experience, it wasn't really too bad, but I, I, I don't know. I think maybe I have a little bit of an advantage being in social science sometimes um, because our ethics review boards, at least in my experience in the United States, is really they're much more concerned with like clinical studies causing some type of like ethical harm to people. And like with social science, you just have to be like, I'm just talking to people. Like I'm not testing anything, you know? Um, but like you bring up a good point. If you are in a department or um, the ethics review board that you have to go through hasn't, you know, reviewed projects that are related to psychedelics, it's kind of a new playing field for them. And they have to reevaluate like, what is this about? And, what are the potential harms of this? And it's it's definitely something different to think about. Yeah, for sure. And and I guess I'll, I'll step back a little bit on what I said. Like, I think at Glasgow University, the faculty itself might be doing some research. But in terms of a student wanting to do research, I mean, I managed to reach out to a student the year before who'd done a similar project that I had, which was really helpful just to know that someone else had managed to do it. I was like, oh, great, like, it, is, it is possible. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting topic in there for sure. Yeah, I think it's useful if you can tap into other faculty or other students who have kind of done similar projects, um, even if they're not psychedelic related. Like when I was doing my ethics review application, I I used a lot of the same wording from another student who did um, like drug research um, that wasn't like clinically based. It was just like recreational drug use. Um, she was studying like addiction, but it was really useful to kind of use this similar wording because it was wording that the review board had already seen and I kind of knew what their expectations were. And so it made the process a little bit easier. So tapping into those other people who have done similar research, whether it's psychedelic related or not, can be really useful for kind of pushing through that process, I think, too. Okay, so you finished the master's program. Um, after you finished the master's program, what's up next? Yeah, so um, I'm just about to start work as a psychosocial therapy support worker um, with the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, down in London. Um, because the, the trajectory that I'm following at the moment is to go on to do counselling or clinical psychology and practice as a psychotherapist. Um, and one of the steps towards doing that is is working as a kind of mental health support worker in the National Health Service. So that's that's my next step. Um, it isn't uh, related to psychedelics, but I want to go on to become a, a psychotherapist. So that's the next steps for me. Okay. And with this job, are you going to continue your education? Or are you going to like take a break and work for a little bit and then maybe go back? Or do you think that your education is kind of just stopped at the master's level for right now? Uh, in terms of like of formal education, <laughs> because I did a five-year undergraduate course and then a, a one-year master's, I was a. Uh, it spent a lot of time <laughs> in academic settings. So um, for now, I'm quite looking forward to to just working um, and not studying um, in academia. So I, what it looks like for me is, is a few years of, of working um, as a mental health support worker and then hopefully as an assistant psychologist in, in about a year. Um, and then doing trainings on the side, there's a few types of therapies that I'd like to get trained in. Um, perhaps some might 
be to do with psychedelic assisted um, therapy, but I'm not really sure how what's going to happen with that in the future, given the legality of, of these substances at the moment, um, and what kind of therapy is going to become certified to work with these compounds. So um, at the moment, that's a little bit of, a, of an unknown. Um, so yeah, it would be about three or four years of work and doing and doing training. Um, and always kind of learning on the side, but not not in kind of an academic setting. Um, and then likely after three or four years applying to do a, a clinical psychology doctorate or a counseling psychology doctorate. Um, that, that's at least the trajectory for now, but who knows how things will turn out. <laughs> that sounds like a great game plan. Um, I know like taking a break from academia is it's a honestly it's a great idea um and i i think i've seen a number of people like go from one program into another into another all the way through the phd and and that works for some people and that's great but i also see like people hit burnout you know they're tired of academia they get to the end and it takes everything they have to push through um and that can be really rough on some people. So that's definitely something to consider for those who are like interested in maybe going all the way through or thinking about taking a break in there. And another thing about taking a break, like you mentioned, you know, you can still you can still learn. It doesn't have to be like formal academia. There's plenty of opportunities to take different kind of trainings and and even having a job is an opportunity for skill building. Um, you know, those skills don't necessarily have to be related right to the psychedelic field, but just just skill building within your general field of study. And those are all really useful, like when you go to apply for another uh, a PhD program. Um, you know, you can put those skills on your application. You can show, I have experience in this field. Um, and and that can make you a really, a really well-rounded candidate, um, whether it's for another job or even for another academic program when you get to that point. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to highlight, you know, like you don't have to push all the way through a program. You can, you can take a break and you can explore life and you can, um, you know, take different trainings and, and even like, I think something like you said with, you know, taking different kind of certifications or trainings or little courses like that, you might find along the way that there's something particular that draws you in and that might change your trajectory down the road too, which I think is something interesting that our listeners might think about too. Yeah, for sure. And and I think we're also quite lucky at this age of how much like free access to information there is online and how much learning you can do just by yourself. So it's like going to university was great because it's like, here are the fundamentals that you need to cover. And so you have to learn all this stuff. And for me, at least like 90% of it, I, I wasn't interested in at all. And the ten percent I was, but now having come out of it, it's like here's the ten percent I'm really interested in, so I can just dive into that, and there's just yeah a lot of opportunity for for learning there. And then also kind of going back to the research project a little bit, that it was one of the great things to come out of it was the connections I made with people at the psychedelic health professionals network. I've stayed in contact with a few a few people there. Um, and what's been great about that is just learning from these people who actually use psychedelics in their practice. So they're um, psychedelic integration therapists, um, or they've got, you know, 40 years of practice experience as a counselor, um, lots of experience with psychedelics, um, lots of experience with meditation. So kind of that's another way of learning is just through networking and meeting people and, and having conversations like this as well it kind of opens up doors to to meeting other people who are fascinated in similar things that you're you're fascinated about yeah and i i know i say this on every podcast episode but networking is literally one of the biggest things that comes up in every single episode and tapping into those relationships that you build with people um, and it's really great that you got to work with that organization while doing that project in your master's. And those are relationships that you'll be able to tap into over and over and over again. Um, so even as you start to build skills that aren't necessarily related to like, you know, the psychedelic realm, like you'll still have that connection to the psychedelic world when you're ready to like step into it. That's a great 
network to tap into for that. Um, and actually, do you mind talking a little bit more about that organization and who are they and what exactly they do? That way, anyone who maybe is in that area, um, they might find it useful to connect and network with them too. Yeah, so they're called the Psychedelic Health Professionals Network, um, and they're based in Scotland. Um, but they have a website. I'm not sure if we could perhaps leave a link in the description below for people who are interested. Um so they, they offer um, trainings for health professionals or people who are just interested in um, trainings in psychedelic integration, um, orientation, so kind of preparation phase. Um, and they organize retreats in the Netherlands um, for, for health professionals. Um, and then they also just put out a lot of information, so kind of summaries of the the latest updates in, in the research um, and just lots of tools and resources for people that are they're in the space that are interested about it and they're perhaps using psychedelics in some way yeah really helpful organization and a group of very yeah very kind people fantastic yeah i will be sure to drop that link in the notes for anyone who's interested in checking them out and learning more about them um that sounds like a really great resource um for that area so that yeah i'll definitely include the link in the notes for that let's talk a little bit more i know that you um you recently graduated and you're kind of making this transition into you know um the working world the working force i suppose um how did you find the job that you ended up getting into i think that's something that's important for listeners is kind of making that transition from academia into into working an everyday job? Yeah. Um, just a lot of internet searches, really, is really what it came down to. Um, in the UK, so we have the National Health Service, and they have their own website, so you can search and apply for jobs through their online system. Um, so it was really through that and just, just sending out my CV and cover letters to lots of different mental health organizations across the UK, um, series of interviews, um, and then eventually was successful with this one. And it was in a place that I wanted to work at and it was the kind of role that I wanted to do. So, um, yeah, it was, it does take quite a while. It's a long process from sending away the initial application to eventually starting the work. Um, yeah, that's kind of what it looked like for me. When you were applying for these jobs and going to the interviews, did you express your interest in in like psychedelic therapy and the future of psychedelics, or is that something that you decided to not talk so much about? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't think I I mentioned it at all, apart from in the description. So they'd ask for a cover letter, so what, what you did at university. So I'd, I'd mentioned some of that and some of the things that I'd learned from doing the research, um, but I didn't mentioned that it was about psychedelics and i never talked about it in the interview because it isn't really relevant to the work that i'd be doing um yeah as i say like i'm kind of at the very initial steps of my journey into psychology um and and the way i see it i think working with psychedelics in, in my practice would, would be quite a bit further down the line um, unless it's on, on a research kind of basis Okay, that makes sense. So, you know, you want to tailor your application to the job that you're applying for. And if it's not necessarily psychedelic related, it's not necessarily something that has to, you know, be highlighted in that application. So that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. So the, the work I'll be doing is working, like supporting people with personality disorder in an inpatient hospital. And the kind of therapies that they use are um, CBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, so... It, yeah, it wasn't obvious to me at the time that there was any need to talk about psychedelics. All right, that makes sense. I have like two, maybe two more questions before we switch over into like the concluding questions. Um, the first question is, in your new job position or even in, you know, your future one, which we know kind of in terms of the legality of psychedelics, things are kind of slow moving and we're not necessarily sure what that trajectory will look like, but what's your ultimate kind of goal 
in the psychedelic field? Where would you like to see yourself be in the end? Yeah, so I get the, the vision now, and this will change, I'm sure, but would be to be working as a psychotherapist um, using different modalities that I've trained in and had experience with throughout the years, um, but also having the ability to use psychedelics in my practice as well. So whether that's being um, a kind of facilitator, so a guide during the experience, or whether it's just helping with the preparation phase and, and perhaps the integration phase. Um, so yeah, I guess a kind of integrative practice with different modalities as well as psychedelics. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that's the main vision. And then um, if possible to to do some work on the research side of things as well, because I did I did really enjoy the research project, but I think at the moment uh, I've maybe been saturated with academia for a while. So. Uh, for now, focusing on work seems the priority. Okay, perfect. The last kind of question I have before we head into the conclusion questions here um, is thinking about your entire journey from your undergrad, becoming curious about psychedelics and consciousness, and then kind of going along your journey and the experience that you had in the master's program and um, and then finding the job that you're, you're headed into now. What advice would you offer to um, other students or other individuals who are new to the psychedelic space and they don't know where to start or what to do? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, actually, I listened to a podcast you did with, um, I think it was Max Wood was his name. And he gave two recommendations that I think I'm just going to echo, to be honest, because they really resonated with me because they were the things that I'd learned from the one step that I've taken into the space. So the way he put it was, um, don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. And my, one of my favorite quotes from Carl Jung is, the fool is the precursor to the hero. So the idea is that if you want to do something heroic, if you want to do something good, make a, a meaningful contribution in some way, then you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to be the fool. Um, you know, like I look back at when I rewatched my interviews, there was so many times where someone had, pretty much just teed up the answer to my question all i needed to have done was to listen and then ask the question at the right time but i didn't completely miss it <laughs> or would go and ask another just irrelevant question um I made so many mistakes throughout the way but and then also making that the proposal to my dissertation supervisor i, I did kind of think i'm going out on a limb here initially got really bad feedback because it was it was a foolish proposal to, to work with a clinical population. Um, but it's okay. I'm so glad that I took that step. And then you can you learn from your foolish mistakes and then do something that's actually, actually possible. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd say just, just be willing to, to, to make the first step. Um, and you are going to make mistakes, but everyone does. That's just kind of part, part of the process. Um, and and uh, and a great part of the process because that's exactly where you learn from is from making the mistakes. So I'd say that. And then the other one that Max said, which I'd like to echo and kind of mentioned this before is, um, is networking. So I, I wanted to start my dissertation. I was like, okay, how, how am I going to find participants for this? So I just typed in on Google, <laughs> a really speculative kind of boring searches, psychedelics, Edinburgh, Edinburgh's the, the city I live in. And it just came up with this blog post about the Psychedelic Health Professionals Network. I was like, okay, I'll email this guy. I just took a chance, emailed him. He got back to me within a couple of days and said, yeah, let's have a conversation. Had a few conversations and then then ended up meeting all the other participants and then managed to do the interviews like that. So it just came from just taking the chance um, to speak to someone. And then all the all the relationships that came from that, um, that allowed the, the project to get off the ground. And not even just that, as we mentioned before, these are people that I'm still in contact with and have been really helpful in my journey of just learning more about psychedelics and learning more about psychology, learning more about meditation. Um, so yeah, just, I'd say to people out there who want to take the first step is just do it. Yeah. Take the first step. And, and and maybe the the final kind of recommendation I would make is is it, it was really helpful for me to take that first step and speak to my dissertation supervisor, 
but it also did really help that <laughs> again back to curious and serious that i was curious and serious about it that i had done some research into it and i was serious about doing it in the proper way that it wasn't just a, a kind of whim of an idea that was kind of half interested in it's like yeah it was curious but also wanted to do it properly and in the right way so um yeah i think that's that's some of the stuff i'd maybe recommend to someone who's interested I think that's all really great advice. And I love that you kind of reiterated that advice from one of our previous podcasts, you know, just kind of taking that first step forward and not being afraid to make mistakes and grow from them um, is wonderful advice, you know, networking repeatedly over and over and over again in every single episode that we do, I think pretty much. And um, yeah, and the, and the last piece too, all of it is just really wonderful advice. So Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. I think they'll really appreciate that. So to kind of round out our discussion, um, I always like to ponder on the future of psychedelics with our guests. So what are your hopes for the future of the psychedelic field? You know, what would you like to see happen in the next five to 10 years? It's a really interesting question. I actually just read a paper two days ago by... Roland Griffiths was one of the um, one of the writers, but it was about the the psychedelic hype bubble, um, which I, th- I thought was actually quite a timely piece because um, I think it's easy to be swept up in in um, the potential of psychedelics to to have well in, in the therapeutic context and then. Maybe changing our understanding of of, um, of consciousness and, and the human nervous system, um, and I think it can be easy to get overexcited and, and maybe over um, ambitious as to as to the use that they actually will have. Um, so, with that in mind, <laughs> um, I think my hope is that the I guess that the research continues. In the promising way that it that it looks like it, it has been going for the last wee while, um, and that there isn't a big cultural blowback like there was in the past, um, and that we can arrive to a place that we have like a <laughs> a nuanced, rational discussion about the therapeutic use of psychedelics and, and wherever else they might end up being useful um, without without just saying it's just for just for stupid hippies or without saying you know this is going to solve the world's problems um and then eventually so that psychedelics can be used in legally in practices um because it does seem like there's there's a lot of value in there i'm so glad you brought that article up i remember seeing that too and i was like we have to put this in the psychedelic grad newsletter this week i was like we have to this is so important um, and I think it's not something that's necessarily being talked about enough, but we are really seeing this big hype. And and like you said, there's this fear. Everyone has this fear in the psychedelic space of, of um, you know, this cultural blowback, what we've seen in the past, especially in the 60s and the 70s. And nobody wants to see that again because we don't know how long it will take to end up um, back in the position where we are now. Um you know, I don't want to have to wait, you know, 40 years of my life or anything like that to get there. Um, so I think that's a really important topic. And I think, you know, there needs to be more discussion in the in the field about this and what that looks like and what it looks like for therapy and what it looks like even for recreational use, because recreational use is never going to go away. We can't stop it, you know. Um, so that needs to be included in the conversation too. Um, you know, how, how do we put that in conversation with clinical and medical studies and um, how do we make it safe for people in those environments? So there's so much to explore there. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, But it's definitely something um, that deserves attention and conversation if we're going to kind of keep the momentum in the space going uh, without, you know, without that potential for backlash again. Yeah, for sure. And and that's maybe a point I hadn't, really considered you know like the the recreational use that is going to happen so how can we i guess approach that in in the 
in the safest way possible. Yeah. And, um, and even with the recreational too, like all of, honestly, all of psychedelic use, like came even before this, you know, the, I guess what we can call this more modern idea of recreational use, but it all really stems from indigenous and traditional knowledge and practices of plant medicine. And, and even that needs to be part of the conversation too. And, um, you know, understanding how all of these different substances are used in different ways and for different reasons and, um, how to make them all kind of coexist in essence um, along with the medical and the clinical, um, because the traditional and the recreational are not going anywhere. Um, so they need to have some type of peaceful coexistence in a way. And that's all kind of part of, I think, that hype bubble too, and, and making sure that everyone has access to these substances in the way that works best for them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that, that seems like it's more towards your interests, right, in the uh, anthropology side of things. And looking at the traditional use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm, I love the medical side. Like I understand the importance of it. Um, and it's definitely like the pathway to legalization. Um, and it's definitely, it's definitely a way for people to access psychedelics. You know, I can't imagine, you know, some of my family members wanting to go to a music festival and trip and that's where they have their experience. You know, um, the medical or the clinical setting is, is much more, kind of their safe space for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that that looks like that for everyone. So um, I definitely see the role of anthropology being essential in trying to put these different contexts of use into a, you know, peaceful conversation with each other, you know, how to find balance within all of them. So hopefully that's, that's kind of where I see my role, I guess, in the field to, to an extent. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good to hear. Yeah. Um, so do you have any other advice or anything else that you would like to offer our audience? Not really. I think, uh, I think I've covered, um, everything that, that I wanted to say. Yeah. Perfect. I think you covered great ground. Um, yeah, I think we covered a lot and you offered some great advice and talking about your experiences with qualitative research and, you know, with the program and even even talking about like things like ethics. Like, I don't think we've covered that in previous episodes, all kinds of different stuff. So I think you had a lot to offer our listeners. So I know I appreciate it and they do, too. Um, before we sign off and say our goodbyes, um, in case we have any listeners that want to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way that they can contact you? Uh, it'd be email. Um, I can leave my email with you and we can put it in the, the description of this episode. Um, so yeah, if, if anyone has um, any questions at all, be it about the research or, or whatever it is, they just want to speak to someone about something, then um, feel free to reach out for sure. Perfect. I will share Stephen's email in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to him um, and talk more about any of these things, feel free to connect with him. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. We've had a diversity of guests on our podcast, which I love. You know, everyone brings something different to the table. Um, and I think it's really important to highlight some of the different stages that people are at within their psychedelic journey and their psychedelic career. And for um, your story, you've really explained to our listeners today that taking that first step is one of the most important things that you can do. You know, um, you can't do much until you take that first step. And so I think a lot of our listeners will find that confidence that they need to move forward on their own path, whether it's the first step or maybe it's even the 50th step or the 100th step, you know, that they that they find themselves in having the confidence to take that next step um, and just keep moving forward. So thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences with our curious to serious listeners. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do. So, um, you know, you have our support from Psychedelic Grad and your future endeavors. Uh, and we look forward to seeing how your journey progresses. So keep us updated. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Gab. It's been a really enjoyable conversation and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll stay in touch. All right, perfect. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I want to direct your attention to the show notes once again, where you can find relevant links from our conversation and ways to contact Stephen. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump on over to the Psychedelic Grad community page. The link is in the notes below. 
Also, when you join our community, you'll get a weekly newsletter filled with psychedelic goodies, including psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings. If you'd like to support Psychedelic Grad and the Curious to Series podcast so that we can keep the dream alive, click the link in the show notes below to donate and buy us a coffee. And finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so that we know we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast. 